I don't know where the comedy is. It's a drama. Hello, Michelle. How are you feeling? I'm still a little bit croaky, but Ooh. I'm going to soldier on because that's what I do, do for the eavesdroppers. You show up, you show off, and you show out. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like I've got nips aplenty or something. What? I'm going to show out my boobs. <laughs> I, it's all about the boobs right now. Do you know what? I just want to apologize right off the bat for last week's episode, the cryptids and poltergeists. It's almost like we've started from where we left off that episode. All of a sudden, it descended into madness as we were discussing the cryptids <laughs> at the end. I think that perhaps there was some delirium on Michelle's side, perhaps some sympathetic madness on my side. Perhaps we were both hitting that night nurse too hard. I don't know. But we sounded like a pair of crazy ladies. Well, that's not far wrong. I mean, I did have a cold adult brain. I still do. I didn't. What's my excuse? I think you're right. It was just sympathetic madness. Yes. And I don't know why I've started off with tits already. Yeah, right in there with tits, the boobies. Tits, tits, tits. I'm right in there with the, with the boobs. But it's because I, I, don't, I don't mind my boobs. Well, good. I'm glad that somebody does. <laughs> my fiancé maybe does not because I've been ordered to sleep upstairs at the moment because of this cold. Yeah. And I have to say, it's wonderful. I just want to explain <laughs> to people, though, that sleeping upstairs does not mean sleeping on the roof. No, it's a, it's a different apartment upstairs. Oh, yes. They have plenty of properties. And so I'm sleeping up there because I'm coughing too much. You're noisy. I'm snoring, apparently. And um, it's absolutely wonderful. And I suddenly got an insight into, you know how you hear about people in marriages who have separate bedrooms yeah. and you think, oh, what a terrible marriage that must be. Honestly, it's wonderful. Yep. You get your own space. You're like, good night. And then you just do all your own things. <laughs> it's lovely. And there is a thing in Europe. Nobody has double duvets. Uh, they're under two singles. Speak to anyone, including my Swedish fiance. They hate a double duvet. Really? Hate it with a passion. They want two single duvets. And I'm like, no. You want a single duvet, you're going to be single. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's a single duvet that I'm sleeping with upstairs. It's lovely. Mm. So I'm I'm coming round to the idea. Okay, well I'm glad. I'm glad that you've you've got your sleeping arrangements all sorted and everything's hunky dory there for you. But I would just like <laughs> to introduce ourselves to our eavesdroppers this week. I am Geordie. and I am Michelle, and together we are. The eavesdropping duo that you love to listen to week in, week out for an hour of ear candy, of all sorts of crazy in your ears. Coming in your ears. That's what we're doing. Now, if it, for anyone who doesn't understand that reference, it's an Alan Partridge. <laughs> no, it's not. She's got that wrong. It's not an Alan Partridge. It's Phoenix Knights. Oh, my God. It is Phoenix Who's Knights. the man that does Phoenix Knights? The northern comedian? It was all the rage years ago. It was all the rage. What's that man's name? He did Show Me the Way to Amarillo, a cover. John, not Johnny Vaughan. No, his sidekick was no. called Paddy. Paddy Guinness. Paddy McGuinness is his sidekick. He was the bouncer in the TV show Phoenix Nights. Those of you who have never seen it, check it out. It's quite funny. It's about like a karaoke place. thought it was Alan Partridge. Charlie <laughs> FM coming in your ears. That was the catchphrase. 
Anywho, Michelle, what have you got to tell me? Anything new? Got nothing. Oh. Life's been pretty dull for you. I've just been sick. Yeah. Being sick sucks. How about you? What's been going on? What's What kind of awesome have you had this week? What? Awesome. Has, what's been awesome for oh, you awesome, this week? Awesome. She means awesome. Well, let's see. I guess just the usual. <laughs> I go to work. I study. I, I raise children. Our lives are so boring. <laughs> what We've got nothing. All I've got is this podcast. That's the only excitement in my life. Well, what have you got for me today? Well, Michelle, this week is a true crime episode for us, isn't it? It is. And I wanted to talk about celebrity death. Celebrity murder, in fact, is what I wanted to talk about today. And when I think of that, I immediately think of things like the 27 Club, which is very famous for all those rock stars over the years who sadly have lost their lives at a young age, it's usually not murder. It's usually things like drug, drug overdoses or in Kurt Cobain's case, he took his own life. But you've got Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, even Amy Winehouse all died at the age mm. of magical age of 27. And I don't know why it is, but I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about the grunge scene today Okay, in the 90s and the long list of casualties that popular grunge musicians became throughout that period. It started with a band called Mother Love Bone. Do you remember them? No. No, I don't remember them. They lost their lead singer, Andrew Wood. He died in 1990 of a heroin overdose. He was 24. And from there, they reformed and made Pearl Jam. Okay. I have to tell you, I I don't know about you, but Heroin was all the rage in the nineties. Everyone was doing it. It had a real it had a real resurgence, yeah, in popularity and everyone hither and thither was on the old H. (laughs) On the horse. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you from the Edwardian time? (laughs) Um, well, listen, back to the grunge era of the 90s. <laughs> then we know that Kurt Cobain famously took his own life in 1994. But did you know that, well, I suppose you do know that Courtney Love, his wife, her band Hole lost their bassist, Kristen Pfaff, to an overdose. She was 27 and that was only about nine months after Kurt died. I think I just forgot that. And then, of course, you remember that Alice in Chains lost a couple of members. They first lost their singer, Lane Staley, in 2002. But then later in 2011, the bassist Mike Starr passed away. So that was much later. So even after the heady days of grunge, the pioneers were still falling off the perch. Of course, you had the famous sad demise of Chris Cornell from Soundgarden and Audio Slave. He passed away in 2017. But was that cancer? No, it was after a show. He took his own life. Fuck's sake. Do you think that these people have like... Everything to live for. and Well, there's a certain nihilistic streak there, I suppose. I mean, I don't know. Mark Lanigan, of course, we lost him this year, 2022, in February. Queens of the Stone Age, Screaming Trees. And, of course, he does his own solo projects. Well, he did. Mark Lanigan, very popular. And then, of course, Taylor Hawkins. He died in March this year, 2022. But going back to the 90s and Seattle grunge, there was a band called Seven Year Bitch. Do you know them? Oh, no, but that, what a great name. I know, so good. Well, they lost their lead guitarist, Stephanie Sargent, in 1992 in a manner similar to Hendrix. And she was only 24. So, you know, Hendrix took too much stuff and ended up mm. getting sick, but he was passed out. So he wasn't able to put himself in the recovery position. So this kind of thing mm. happened, I think, to a lot of people. And this happened to Stephanie Sargent. And years later, they lost another member, really sadly, Lisa Faye Beatty. She died in a car crash at 47. 
But also age 27 at the time of her death, back in the 90s, was a really influential punk grunge singer from Seattle by the name of Mia Zapata. Well, I listened to a, what's that guy, Casey? Case Files episode. Yes. To to find out more about this, because I'd never heard of Mia Zapata before or of this story. It's quite shocking. And I also got some information from the Rolling Stone magazine. So Mia Zapata was the lead singer of a Seattle underground grunge band called The Gits, which apparently they got their name from a Monty Python sketch, The Gits. I think there was more to it, like The Stupid Gits or something. I don't know, but they shortened it. So this band was formed in 1986 with fellow students from Antioch College in Ohio, which is where they also met the seven-year bitches, Stephanie Sargent and Valerie Agnew, two band members from Seven Year Bitch. And the Gits bassist, Matt Desner, remembers hearing Mia sing one night at an open mic do a few months before they started the band. And he told Rolling Stone in this interview that I read, he said of that night, he was transfixed and overcome. He said, I cried. It was raw, honest, to the bone and from the heart. No music or musician had ever affected me like she did that night. By all accounts, she was something very different, a breath of fresh air really exciting Mm. to watch on stage and to listen to, especially at that young age. So along with Mia and Matt, they were joined by guitarist Andy Kessler, a.k.a. Joe Spleen. There's a good punk rock name. (laughs) And drummer Steve Moriarty. And together they were the Gits. So in 1989, they moved to Seattle and into an abandoned house in the Capitol Hill District. They called the Rat House. I'm just thinking it was like a squat. We all did that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds definitely like a squat. Abandoned it's really house. Cool. Yeah. Call it the rat house because there's rats there and we're a bit ratty and we all live there and it's fun and it's punk and it's great. But Mia spent her time performing with the Gits and working as a dishwasher at a local bar in order to make ends meet. Until the Gits had a break after gathering a devout fan base. When I was doing the research for this story, it really brought me back to that time in the 90s. I I was living in London. I was a single parent, but I was also in bands and I had a local place that me and my friends used to hang out at. And it did feel very much like I was back there again when I was reading this story. I did suggest that we go back to that pub and you went, ew, it's so awful. (laughs) (laughs) It is now. It's pretty rank. They haven't done much to it. After a self-funded tour, they were offered a record deal and things were starting to look good for the band. So they're on the cusp of making success it. at this point. Yeah. yeah. Mia came from a tight-knit and considerably well-off family. Despite her parents' divorce, the family remained close. So she came from a really nice, solid background, unlike a lot of the people that she was spending time with, I suppose. But on Tuesday, July 6, 1993, Mia met her dad for lunch at a local Indian restaurant before they went to go record shopping in, I think it was Tower Records or somewhere, and then they went on to an art museum And then Mia's dad dropped her back at her flat around 3 p.m. This is off the back of their tour, just before they were about to make it big. And her dad just liked to check in with her every now and again because, obviously, she's living this life. Um, It's pretty exciting for her. He's worried about her, you know. He's a good dad. Like, that sounds lovely. So he had no reason to worry about Mia after that day because he thought that she just seemed really content and at ease with herself. They said goodbye. Later in the day, Mia took her dog for a walk and then she went and did her laundry. And at about 6.30pm that evening, she went to Pancreas Production Studio to rehearse, not with the Gits, but with her recent ex-boyfriend's band, Hell's Smells, as a backing vocalist. 
So the ex, I couldn't find much about him. His name's Robert Jenkins and he was in a lot of punk bands and he has now passed away. But I think he might have been quite a bit older than Mia. I'm not sure. But anyway, he and Mia had been in a serious relationship for some time. Marriage was on the cards. And then suddenly they broke up. And he swiftly moved on with another person. Oh, that's that's tough. It was tough. She was left heartbroken, couldn't quite let it go. Plus, she's backing vocalist in one of his bands. But nevertheless, she continued to rehearse with him and their band. And so they were in the studio for about two hours before Mia left. So she walked around the corner to their local hangout, which is the Comet Tavern, which is probably a little bit like the Hermit's Cave, which was the one that we were talking about <laughs> earlier. It's about a block away where Mia would usually go and all her friends and acquaintances would be there. It's like Just like the cave, you'd just turn up. The Hermit's Cave is in Camberwell. Your mates would be there or someone that you knew would be there and it's just a nice little hangout. So that evening, there was an informal memorial for Stephanie Sargent, who earlier, if you remember, I'd mentioned she was from the band Seven Year Bitch and she had died a year before. So Mia got herself quite drunk that night and there's speculation that she may have been feeling rather maudlin after the breakup and the memory of Stephanie, who was an old friend and a musical peer. And drinking generally was a bit of a problem for Mia. She wasn't a druggie like some of the other people in her scene, but she was actually told by the Gits that they were going to kick her out if she didn't pull it back a little bit. So when they went on tour, she was completely sober for that whole time. And then they were back. She obviously fell off the wagon. So friends at the Comet noticed that she seemed agitated after the rehearsal with her ex-boyfriend, Robert Jenkins. And she was knocking back these drinks one after the other. But at some point, she left the Comet to walk around the corner to the pizza parlour. She got some booze from there, brought it back to the Comet. So she must have been planning to continue drinking after the closing. Now, that also reminds me of the Hermit's Cave, Mm. where you'd go before closing, you'd go to Bolu Kebabs, wouldn't you? And get all your booze ready to go on somewhere else. And you'd have a kebab or a falafel. You might just slip one of those in as well. Who knows? (laughs) A quick kebab. (laughs) You would bring them back to the pub, wouldn't you? And sit with them on your lap eating a smelly old kebab. I mean, that's why the the Hermit's Cave is so gross. It's still like that. Yeah, I mean, they do need to probably change the carpet because it was sticky. Oh, that's been ripped up. Oh, really? That was ripped up. Yeah, it's floorboards. doesn't make it any nicer. I I still quite like it. It it, it transforms you right back. You walk in there, the smell does take you back to the early 90s. I love it. They've still got the seats with the big hole in them. (laughs) Like everyone's sitting up high and you're down in a little ditch. (laughs) Anyway, we're back at the Comet now with Mia and her friends. Now, she made a phone call from the bar's payphone. This is the early 90s. No one had mobiles. But no one knows who she called. It's assumed that she was trying to call her ex, Robert Jenkins. Mm. So eventually she left the Comet about 1 a.m., apparently telling friends she was off to find Robert Jenkins. So he was on her mind all night long Mm. as far as we can make out. She walked back to Pancreas Production Studios. By that time, everyone was long gone. She had a friend who lived in the building next door to the studios called TV. So she went to visit him. He was also a member of Jenkins' band, Hell's Smells. Hell's Smells. Hell's Smells and Buckets of Blood. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's a great band name. Hell's Smells. <laughs> he said later that Mia was steaming drunk and furious at not being able to find her ex-boyfriend 
She clearly had unfinished business here. So she spent about an hour with TV and then she left, even though TV tried to stop her. He kept saying, please don't go. Come stay here the night. Sleep it off. Nevertheless, she left TV's apartment. When she went, she was wearing a black Gits hoodie. They had merch. Amazing. She had the merch. Exactly. She had her sweatshirt on, cut off jeans, black boots, carried a Walkman. And that's the last time anyone reported seeing oh, her. No. Sadly, at 3.20am, just over two miles from TV's place in an area known for sex work, one of the ladies of the night found a body in the street. <gasps> oh, my God. She called the authorities and the fire department arrived at the scene at half past three in the morning. They found a young female lying on the pavement. Her ankles were crossed and her arms were spread in a Christ-like pose. The sweatshirt she wore was pulled up underneath her arms with the hood tied tightly around her face and knotted under her throat. Her underwear was torn and stuffed in the pocket of her jeans. The paramedics noticed abrasions on exposed parts of her body, including alongside her nipples. Mm. She had no pulse and did not appear to be breathing, but the body was still warm, so the paramedics did attempt to resuscitate, but it was unsuccessful. Oh, my God. She was pronounced dead and sent to the morgue as a Jane Doe because she had no ID uh, ID on her. But the medical examiner who was doing the autopsy had no doubt who it was. He was a fan of the Gits, and he recognised Mia immediately. Oh, my God, how awful. Yeah. This medical examiner's findings were that Mia had been strangled probably with the drawstring of her hoodie and it was also discovered that she had been beaten so badly that she had a lacerated liver which would have resulted in her death had she not been strangled. Mia had injuries consistent with rape but no evidence was left at the scene. The medical examiner thought the abrasions along her nipples were caused by teeth so he took swabs from the area. Saliva was detected But DNA testing at that point wasn't what it is today, Michelle. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't going to be much use. But the medical examiner kept the sample for future use. So it wasn't revealed to the public that Mia was raped. No one knew about that detail. Plus the fact that her bra was torn and missing a cup, which they couldn't find on or around the body. They kept this information back because they didn't want suspects, potential suspects, knowing these details. Mm. Obviously, these were going to be the telltale things that would separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Sometimes you get people confessing to crimes that they didn't do. So this will be a line of questioning where if they have these answers, then you can take that suspect seriously. Exactly. Mm. But it was assumed by examiners and investigators that Mia had been walking with her Walkman on, listening to music... And she wasn't aware of an impending attack. So she really didn't have a chance. And because of the area Mia was found in, investigators thought she might have been a victim of the still unidentified Green River Killer. If you've ever heard about this Green River Killer, it's appalling, the crimes that he committed. Horrifying. I can't listen to or read anything about the Green River Killer because it's just so frightening. I tell you what else is frightening. You know how uh, just last week we were talking about the Jeffrey Dahmer series that's on Netflix at the moment and both of us said absolutely no chance that we're going to watch it. It has hit record views. It is literally off the charts the most watched thing on Netflix right now. What do you think that says about 
us as a society. It could also be fans of American Horror Mm. Story because it's by that team, isn't it? And it stars one of their actors that's always in it. I saw the O.J. Simpson trial by that person. Mm. And what else did they do? The Versace one. I thought they were quite good as kind of crime. True crime. Dramedy. (laughs) Dramedy. Not dramedy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where the comedy is. It's a drama and a comedy. Drama. Based on true crime is what I meant to say. Dramatizations. But yes, that was quite shocking that Mm. it has gone off the charts in record views. Well, hopefully it's not gory. Perhaps it's just about the psychology. People are interested often in the psychology behind these serial killers. I think that's where the fascination lies. So it was later discovered due to lack of any evidence in the surrounding area where Mia had been found, that she was killed elsewhere and the body had been moved. And in actual fact, Mm. she wasn't posed, but that's just how she landed. Do you see what I mean? Like when they found her body in that particular position, it's because she was dumped. She landed that way. I don't know. That seems quite deliberate. Feet crossed. So obviously the suspect at the top of the list was... Robert Jenkins, the ex-boyfriend, and even some of her friends believed he was responsible. And this is because the day after she was killed, one of her friends went to the rehearsal studio where Mia had been looking for him the night before and they found a Gitz demo tape and Mia's microphone, which she usually took everywhere with her. So it wasn't on her when she died and it was left at the rehearsal studio. Hmm. But Robert Jenkins had an alibi and the police also felt he had no real reason to harm her. And also they looked through the studio. There was no evidence of a crime having taken place there. And it was assumed that she just left the tape and mic there after looking for him or even having gone back there after leaving TV's place. And maybe she'd just forgotten to take it with her. Who knows? She was drunk. It's possible. There was a report from a man who told police he heard a terrified scream in the early hours of July 7. And the scream was so unsettling, he went outside to see if he could see anything, but there was nothing there. But this was about three miles from where Mia's body was found. That's a long distance to take a body. Mm. Unless they wanted to make out that Mia was a sex worker and dump her in the... Possibly. In the sex work district. So she would get cabs everywhere. And police did at one point come up with the theory that it was a cab driver. And they did all their police checks into cab firms showing that no one had picked up Mia that, that night or... None of them had even reported seeing her. So then the detectives looked into the possibility of an obsessed fan or a musical competitor who was jealous. Hmm. Perhaps they were the culprit. But as far as Mia was concerned, yes, she was on the cusp of huge success. Everybody loved her and adored her. But she was well liked throughout the community and she kind of was the glue that kept everyone together. So that theory seemed really unlikely. So Mia's friends became really frustrated at how long this investigation was taking. No suspects coming forward. Everybody was being discounted. So they clubbed together and hired a private investigator with help from the Gits who continued to perform without her, but with a new singer, Joan Jett who was so affected by the sad death of Mia, she stepped in as lead vocalist for a time. So she also put money forward from her band, The Black Hearts. Also, other better-known Seattle bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, then Sonic Youth and Hootie and the Blowfish, I don't even know who they are, were all contributing to funding this private investigator whose name was Lee Heron. So she was employed for about two years until the cash just ran out. Still no closer, but she carried on the investigating on her own and on her own 
cash as well. She funded it herself. In 1994, now this is two years later, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts released their album, Pure and Simple, with a song dedicated to Mia called Go Home. Aww. And during 1995, Joan Jett joined the Gits for live shows under the name Evil Stig, which is Gits Live Backwards. See what they did there? <laughs> In 1996, the release of a benefit album is called Home Alive, The Art of Self-Defense. And it has bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, all of those guys on it. And the proceeds went to Home Alive, which is a self-defense program for women started by Mia's friends, Joan Jett, Seven Year Bitch and Kathleen Hanna from Bikini Kill. And this is all in the wake of Mia's murder. She did have a lot of love in that community. It ripped the community apart, I imagine. So after nearly 10 years, a couple of detectives were given Mia's case to work on as a cold case. 10 years later. But what did they have, Michelle? They still had that sample of DNA that the medical examiner way back had the foresight to save. And by then, DNA had advanced so much. So the police ran it through the lab and it came back with two profiles. One was Mia's. The other was an unknown male with no hits. Then they sent it to the FBI and they ran it through the national database in June 2002. It still shed no light, but the cold case detectives hoped that a match would at some point be made. So it was sitting there waiting for a match. Ah, so it just became part of the database. Yes. And eventually it was. Jesus Mezquia, who is a Cuban fisherman who was living in Florida and had a criminal record that included robbery, kidnapping, aggravated assault of both a spouse and of a pregnant woman, assault to commit rape and robbery across multiple states, his name came up because he was on probation for something where he had to give a cheek swab every two weeks and it was through this that they finally got him. Oh, my God. Yeah. How was he from Florida to Seattle, other side of the country? This is 10 years later. It turns out that Mezquia lived in Seattle around the time of Zapata's murder. And it was also revealed that about five weeks after Mia was murdered, a young woman who was walking about a block away from the Comet Tavern noticed a car following her. And she assumed the driver wanted to offer her a lift until she realized he was having a little wanky poo poos <gasps> in the car. Ew. I know. Yuck. So she wrote down his license plate and then made her escape, reported it to the police. They checked the license number. It was Jesus Mesquia, but the police never made the connection between an indecent exposure crime and the murder of Mia Zapata. Fair play. It's a tenuous link for the police to make. So Yeah. But I mean, they were being quite tenuous at the time because they had no one. Yeah. Never mind, he slipped through the net at that point, but they did eventually get him. But it was also discovered at the time of Mia's murder, he was living with his partner and the partner's mother, not too far from the Comet Tavern and close to the area where Mia's body had been dumped. So obviously this went to trial and Ms. Kia's defence tried to show evidence that the ex-boyfriend, Robert Jenkins, had actually committed the murder because he found out that she was around looking for him. So he went to her apartment where one of the flatmates told him that she was in the shower. But Jenkins replied saying it probably wasn't her. So in retrospect, people are saying, well, how would you know? Mm. But then why would he go looking? I don't know, it's weird. He's tenuously trying to find links with other people so that he can get off this. Because the way to get off a murder charge is to 
point the finger at someone else. Mia brought to his defence, Mia's friends had sometimes said that Jenkins would go crazy and attack Mia. Oh. But they said there was no physical evidence connecting Jenkins to the scene. The DNA excluded Jenkins. So that was done. No way. He's out. So then they pointed the finger at a cab driver called Scott McFarlane, who had claimed to have a relationship with Mia and was driving a cab in the area of Seattle on the night that she was killed. And weirdly, a year after her death, McFarlane apparently made some weird statements about her murder that kind of incriminated him. But again, insufficient evidence, couldn't introduce him as a suspect. Also during the trial, a woman came forward to say that Mezquia had assaulted her six months after Mia's murder, but she didn't report it at the time. But once she saw the picture... She realised it was him and he had tried to strangle this woman, but she got away. Oh, Why would you not report that to the police? I don't know. It's madness. Always report it, people. So eventually, Mosquia was sentenced to 36 years in 2004 for the rape and murder of Mia Zapata. And this sentence exceeded the maximum amount because of the particularly painful injuries that Zapata had suffered. He weirdly waived his rights to a jury trial and then went to appeal in 2009 where he received the same sentence. Right. Oh, well, so justice was served in this case, but it took some time. Eventually. Yeah. It took some time, absolutely. So it's believed that Mesquia didn't know Mia. It was just a wrong place, wrong time, and that he was violent and seething and he went out looking for a victim while his partner was out of town. And it's believed that he drove past Pancreas Studios just as she was leaving TV's flat at around 2am. He followed her and attacked her while she had her headphones on. She didn't stand a chance. She was a tall person, mm. but he was huge, six foot four. Jesus Mesquia maintained his innocence in all mm. the years that he was put away for the rape and murder. From the time he was arrested till he died in a Washington prison last year, 2021. So the Gits had a second album, which they released after Mia's death, called Enter the Conquering Chicken. It was released in 1994. They found some demos that Mia had put together and they were able to use those after Mia's death nine months later Kurt Cobain's suicide happened which kind of made everybody think grunge is a deadly scene Mm. to be in because it's such a horrific murder I just want to end this on a quote that the members of the Gits left in her memory because Rather than just being a victim, she was more than that. Mia Zapata was an extraordinary human being. She was a beloved friend, a gifted songwriter, musician, visual artist and performer. We prefer to remember her friendship, talent, humour and the incredible art and music she left to the world. That was from the guys who were in the band with her. And I think it's quite fitting and beautiful. The grunge scene is so evocative of points in my life. I can understand how if when you're drunk, you put on your headphones and you're in that world. You're in the music. You're not aware of someone following you. You're not aware of that no, shit. No, she felt like she owned the town. She knew it back to front. She had her people that she hung out with who might have been a bit seedier than normal. She felt safe. Real life. Real life. True crime. True crime. I know that we were going to talk about famous people who had been murdered, but I actually flipped this around because I came across this story about a Hollywood actor called Johnny Lewis. And I was kind of shocked that it hadn't been on my radar before because, and I think it wasn't because I was never a fan of the OC or Sons of Anarchy. Did you ever watch those shows? 
No, I didn't. Was he in those? Yes. I thought you were going to say he was back in the 40s or the 30s or something. No, but anyone who's watched those shows will know his characters. He played Dennis Chili Childress in The O.C., who, according to some reports, was a bit of a heartthrob, but also other people say he was like one of the most annoying characters in the show. So I don't, I, I can't <laughs> really comment on that. And look, he is kind of handsome in a bit of a Boris Becker way. You know, he had that. Boris Becker. Yeah, he's a bit of a pale ginger, <laughs> pale ginger with oh, the, okay. with the, you know, like the white eyebrows and the no, and the pale eyelashes. He's that kind of kind of thing. I like that look, but I don't love Boris Becker. Do you find Boris Becker attractive? Oh, look, I think he's got a little something, something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't mind a pale ginger. Anyway, look, he was, he was a regular character in the OC. And after that show ended, he went on to play Kip Halfsack Epps in Sons of Anarchy. Again, another show I haven't watched. His character was ex-army. He was called Half Sack because he lost one ball when he was fighting in Iraq. Oh, God. But in the in the show, his character was soft and gentle and was hoping to become part of the Sons of Anarchy bikey gang. But for Johnny personally, it, his character was completely opposite to him and he, he wasn't into it. And he, he told his dad he wanted to be written out of that show because – the plot lines were becoming too violent. Right. In fact, I read this quote. His dad, Michael, said that Johnny had told him, he told us he left the show because it was the show was getting into gratuitous violence and he didn't want to communicate that as oh. an artist. And actually the creator of Sons of Anarchy, Kurt Sutter, had said in an interview in 2009 that Johnny wasn't happy. Creatively, he really wanted out of his contract. In the 2009 Sons of Anarchy season finale, Half Sack is stabbed to death with a kitchen knife while trying to save a baby. Ew. It does sound rather rough, doesn't it? I think it's quite a violent show. Did the baby make it? I don't think so. I mean, oh God, I couldn't watch that. No, but look, apparently Half Sack was a really well-loved character by fans and they were devastated. You know, like in terms of his personal life, uh, Johnny was born in 1983. He'd been acting since he was six and he'd had lots of small parts in ads, in Seventh Heaven, Malcolm in the Middle. He grew up in LA in a family that was a bit Jewish, but a lot Scientologist. Oh. Yeah. Apparently his parents had reached the highest level uh, you can get to in Scientology. And they were operating thetans, <laughs> which according to the writings of Scientology. Are- Tom Cruise's level, isn't it? Yeah. So it's high, high level shit. But I also read that at 20 years old, he left, well, the Church of Scientology. He had that foundation of a bit Jewish, lot Scientology. He also, and I read this after he'd left the Church of Scientology, he was dating Katy Perry between 2005 and 2006. Oh, and this was okay. just before she blew up big with I Kissed a Girl. Uh-huh. But she had come from a weird churchy background. Yeah, background as well so that was their sort of connection if you research him loads of pictures pop up of him being papped with Katy Perry mm-hmm. and I think he was probably at the time more famous than her 
So that's just a little roundup of Johnny Lewis. And I always just think of John Lewis, which is a big department store. John Lewis, of course, yes. But it, it, Never knowingly undersold. <laughs> that's their catchphrase. So look, by all accounts, you know, he was... He was a nice guy who didn't want to be involved in these violent TV shows and everybody really liked him. But unfortunately, in the light of history, these are not the things he's known for because sadly, Johnny's life didn't end up going so well. Oh. Back in 2009, you know, on the surface of things, everything seemed to be going great for Johnny. You know, his career was going great guns. He'd received lots of accolades for his acting and he'd managed to get out of his contract with Sons of Anarchy and he was happy yeah. about that. And because according to reports I read, Johnny apparently saw himself as, as a bit of a writer and an artist. Yeah. And he was constantly writing poems and screenplays and he'd even started two novels and he had journals filled with philosophical thoughts and ruminations. So Creative. Yeah, he was a bit of a, I think, a bit a bit soft and a bit of a... Sensitive soul. Yeah. So when he heard about this place called the Writer's Villa in LA, he thought it sounded perfect for him. And it was this big old Spanish mansion house in Los Feliz, which is a super trendy part of LA near Silver Lake. And I have spent time in Los Feliz. It's beautiful. This house was set up as a bit of a retreat for creative people who were new to LA and it was owned and run by this charismatic old lady called Catherine Davis and she was also known by all like the tenants um, as Miss Kathy. Miss Kathy. <laughs> she was Texan. She'd moved to California in the 50s. She got married, bought the house, got divorced, kept the house and sort of reinvented herself as house mother yeah yeah and house mum to all these creatives you know just needing needing a place while they're trying to make it you know a bit of a base camp for for actors and writers and directors and people like Val Kilmer and Parker Posey had all like gone through there and everyone loved Miss Kathy and in April 2009 Johnny moved into the Red Suite on the second floor According to his friends, he absolutely loved living there and he loved Miss Kathy and her cat. And this is a quote from LA Mag, which is this article that was written about Johnny, where a lot of this information comes from today. It was a friend called, uh, of Johnny's called Bo Garrett who said, I hung out with Johnny over there at the writer's villa a few times and I remember all the nice things he said about her and how she opened her place to artists and eccentrics. So... The reason I'm telling you about Miss Cathy is because I just want you to put a pin in that because I'm going to come back to this happy time in mm -hmm. Johnny's life at the writer okay. villa, writer's villa later in this story. So one more thing. Also back in 2009, Johnny had been dating and living with an actress called Diane Gayetta, who he'd worked with on the OC briefly. And I tried to do a sort of mini deep dive into this relationship and it seems like it was complicated because everything I've read, there's conflicting reports about it. So in some reports, it says that when uh, Diane became pregnant, Johnny was thrilled. Other reports say they weren't really together and that they separated while she was pregnant. Fact is, she gave birth to a baby girl called Colour May in April 2010. What's her name? Colour May. C-U-L-L-A. 
Color. Color. Oh. Kula? Kula. Don't, don't know. Color. Some reports say this baby was kept secret from family and friends. Oh. And the fact that he was the dad wasn't wi- widely known. Oh. Other reports say even though the pair weren't together, they continued to live together and that he was thrilled. Right. To be a dad. I don't really know what the truth is. Mm. But what we do know is that he ended up in a long and quite emotionally painful custody battle for the baby. And he didn't win. So the whole thing's a bit of a mess. And like we said earlier, a lot of his friends had said he was a bit of a sensitive sort. And he was not a hard partying dude, you know. They say you were more likely to find him drinking tea and playing chess and, and... you know, having philosophical debates rather than like hoovering up drugs right. and drinking and partying hard. So, you know, it, he he seems like he was a decent kind of guy. So also put a pin in the fact that, you know, I think he'd gone through some shit with this woman and, and the custody and okay. the baby and everything. All right. I'm, I've got a little pin board. I've got a couple of things up there at the moment. <laughs> I've got Miss Kathy. I've got the baby daddy. <laughs> So after he'd wrapped up his role on Sons of Anarchy and and gone through this awful custody battle for his kid, you know, he'd done a few small-time movies, but nothing too exciting. But that said, he was working, you know, he wasn't on the skids. And then late in October 2011, Johnny, who loved riding motorbikes, actually, he lost control of his triumph. And even though I can't find any specifics on the crash, you know, he did crash and he was taken to hospital and he was checked over by the hospital staff and they did check him for signs of concussion. But it seems that he was okay and the crash clearly wasn't too bad and he was allowed to leave the hospital after tests for concussion came negative. However, after the crash, his dad, Michael, noticed that Johnny's behaviour was just getting weird he was erratic he just wasn't himself so Michael scheduled two MRIs for Johnny thinking that maybe the the accident had triggered some kind of brain injury or brain trauma and that the MRIs might get to the bottom of what the hell was going on but Johnny refused to go he just would not go to have these MRIs it wasn't just his dad who noticed that he wasn't himself Friends were getting freaked out by his change in behaviour as well. Things like during an acting class, he was speaking in a British accent and when a friend called him out on it, Johnny just shrugged it off like, Mm. what are you talking about? I'm British. No, 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 Mm. no, no. I'm never going to dance again. (laughs) Just like George Michael when he woke up with a West Country accent. Thing is that, you know, those sorts of things are weird but just a bit harmless. But over the next year, Johnny's behaviour went from dodgy to dangerous. On the morning of January the 3rd in 2012, Johnny was at the condo he'd bought for his parents, just watching his mum like fry up some eggs and he was in his gym jams. Then suddenly out of nowhere, he told his mum and dad he's going out for a walk. In his jammies? Oh. So he walked past another one of the condos in the complex. He apparently told people he thought he could hear someone screaming. So he broke into the condo. But there was no one there. So he just was hanging out in the condo. Sounds like a psychotic break. A few minutes later, a couple of men rocked up to the apartment and were like, who the fuck are you? Sure. Get the fuck out of this condo. Like, why are you here? He grabbed a glass 
bottle and started bashing these two dudes over the head (gasps) with this glass bottle. He attacked them. Wow. It went from bad to worse with Johnny biting one of the guys on the arm. Oof. It was manic and frenzied. And somehow these guys, there are two of them, managed to pin Johnny down and kept him pinned down until the police arrived. And Johnny was like, I was acting in self-defense. But the police were like, bullshit, you've broken in. These men are telling you to get out. You attack them with a glass bottle. He ended up being charged for trespassing, burglary and assault with a deadly weapon. And he was sent to jail. Oh, my goodness. Three days later, Johnny flipped out in in the jail. In prison. Mm, To the point where his behaviour was so crazy and erratic that he was sent to a psych ward for 72 hours. And it was not voluntary. It was involuntary. Like, they put him in there. After eight days in prison and the psych ward, Johnny was released and sent to live at his parents' condo. And it was a disaster. Almost became like a caged animal. He wouldn't let anyone touch him or get near him. He was bizarrely sensitive to light. He began turning off all the lights in the house and eventually turned off the fuse box because he just couldn't have anything going on. What was happening to him? Yeah, look, it just got really bad and he actually tried to kill himself. He slashed his wrists, but he didn't die. Then he was arrested for, without any provocation, punching a guy unconscious <gasps> outside a yogurt shop. Oh, my God. A yoga? Yogurt. Oh, yogurt. Okay. Yogurt. Yogurt. <laughs> yogurt. <laughs> How unpeaceful is that? Going to yoga, coming out and getting knocked unconscious. But the man was getting yogurt. 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 But even still, I don't think... No, he shouldn't be punched. He just wanted a yogurt. No punching. Not needed. But he was punched unconscious. Like, that's... I know, that's crazy. violent. Again, he was uh, arrested. But he he was uh, released on bail. And days after that, just days after that, he walked fully clothed into the sea in Santa Monica... And was hospitalised for hypothermia. Oh, gosh. This poor chap. I know. And a few days after that, he was arrested again for trying to break into a woman's apartment and again was released on bail. Then in May 2012, Johnny's friend, Tucker, I don't know much about this Tucker chap. He seemed a nice guy because he picked him up to take him to a court appearance. This guy, Tucker, was absolutely freaked out by Johnny's behaviour. He was quoted as saying... Johnny was just another person completely. And he said, and this is a quote, he had a look I've only seen in disturbed veterans of war. His memory was scattered. He vacillated between basic lucid conversation and incoherence. Unraveling. His family sent him to doctors who prescribed Johnny Zyprexa and Abilify, both of which are used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar. Mm -hmm. But he would not take the medication. And the thing is that according to his dad, Michael, no one, no doctors, no one could actually determine what was wrong with Johnny. You know, they didn't, like, was he schizophrenic? Was he psychotic? You know, or was this all a result of undiagnosed brain injury from the motorbike accident? Well, that was the point where it changed, wasn't it? Mm. And his dad is quoted as saying, we've got the motorcycle head injury Then he's beaten in the head 17 times during the fight where he was beating those people up with the glass bottle. Oh. Right? Then, apparently, when he's in jail, 
he's apparently pounding his own head against the concrete and then attempting to leap from a second-story pier. Then you have the doctor's own diagnosis of brain trauma. So this is from all these other things, not just the motorbike. And And the dad says, this is just the stuff we know about. So there's a lot of potential head injury here. Yeah. So eventually Johnny's lawyer managed to persuade the courts to let Johnny go to a treatment centre rather than jail, even though he didn't have a drug or alcohol problem. And they granted this. And after a few months of being in this treatment centre, he did seem to be less erratic. Clearly, dude was not well because he fired his lawyer, represented himself in court over the assault and the breaking in charges. And it didn't go well because he was sentenced to a year in jail. But because at that point in LA, the jails were really overcrowded, Johnny got lucky and only did six weeks in jail before being released. instead of a year. Mm. And he was released on September 21, 2012. Now, remembering how nice it was at the writer's villa, he asked his dad, to contact Miss Cathy at the Rioters Villa to see if there was a room going. And his dad is quoted as saying, it didn't occur to me to say to Miss Cathy, oh, by the way, Johnny's had some problems. Yeah, a lot of problems. Dad, come on. The dad just thought this is a place that Johnny was familiar with and he really liked and they'll give him a lot of love there. Well, they're desperate for him to be somewhere where he feels safe and happy again. They're not thinking about the other people's safety. So Miss Cathy said to Johnny's dad, yeah, of course. I'll make sure his old room is there, ready and waiting for him. And a few days later, Johnny moved back into the red room. So the morning after Johnny moved in on September 26, 2012, he went next door and introduced himself to his neighbour, Dan Blackburn, which all sounds very nice and civilised, except... Dan had been watching Johnny for the past 15 minutes, wearing nothing but jeans and a pair of red shoes, pacing up and down outside on the pavement outside the villa. So Dan, knowing this, is like, "Uh, yeah, okay, nice to meet you. Uh. Johnny then sized him up and walked away. Half an hour later, Uh Dan heard his wife Gloria screaming at him to go outside and when he did he found Johnny beating the shit out of the painter that Dan and Gloria had hired to paint the exterior of their house so Dan tried to break up the assault by trying to grab Johnny and pull him off the painter but then Johnny started to beat the shit out of Dan and to put this into context at this point Johnny is 28 and he's strong and wiry Dan's in his 70s. Oh, It's shit. not a fair fight. So basically, Johnny is punching Dan and Dan's down. But it's not long, to his credit, before Dan is back on his feet and lands a punch to Johnny's yeah. temple. But the weird thing is, Johnny <gasps> didn't even flinch at this punch. Oh, my God. So then Dan manages to pick up a chair and smash it over Johnny's head, which stunned him enough to allow Dan... Gloria and the painter to run into Dan's house but as they tried to shut the door Johnny 
sticks his <gasps> arm through the gap. Oh, my God. It's like The Shining. Horror movie. Here's Johnny. Oh, my God. That's so terrifying. Dan and Gloria and the painter are putting all of their weight collectively on the door oh. to try and keep Johnny from getting inside. And somehow they managed. Who's called the cops? They, well, they can't. They're not even inside yet. So oh. they manage to get the door and like whack it against Johnny's arm. Oh, jeez. And they manage to do that. And finally the arm kind of slithers away and oh. disappears from the door. And they, they slam the door shut and lock it. And when they realised that Johnny had gone, they called the police. (gasps) So from inside the house, Dan sees Johnny leap over the fence. Oh, God. And around the writer's villa, he looks like his feet is never touching the ground. And he scales the fence and disappears inside the writer's villa. And Dan says he looked like a low-key Spider-Man. And it's like he had superhuman strength. Minutes later... The police arrive and what they find is worse than a horror movie. Oh, no. So I'm massive, massive trigger warning. Trigger here, warning. Before you start this trigger warning, has anyone ever seen the movie Split by M. Night Shyamalan starring James McAvoy? This is what I'm thinking of when you're describing him. I'll put a link. Trigger warning. Oh, sorry, pet. Trigger what was that? You might want to put down that sandwich. As the police pull up to the writer's villa, they see... Johnny lying in the middle of the driveway, face up, blood everywhere. His left eye socket is caved in. His skull is cracked in half and smashed. And he's fallen from either the second floor or the roof. And he's died instantly. But that's not all, Geordie. That's not all. Oh, fuck it. Trigger triggers here. When the police walked upstairs from the first floor... Investigators had to walk over broken glass before entering the red room. And there they found a rusty hammer with blood on it. Oh, no. When they went into the attached bathroom, they discover the dead body of Miss Kathy's cat <gasps> in the shower, dismembered and covered in blood. Oh, God. Then, trigger, across the hall from the red room is Miss Kathy's room. When they went in there, it was fucking grisly. Oh, dear. Miss Kathy's blood is everywhere. Her body is lying dead near the bed, smashed her the whole left side of her face, leaving her brain exposed. Yikes. And there are puncture wounds on her left cheek, which the police think was from a mechanical pencil. What? Yeah, that was found right next to the body. Oh, my God. Now... Investigators believe that just minutes after Johnny had gone over and introduced himself to Dan, he went back to the villa, punched and strangled Miss Kathy, killed her cat, then went outside and attacked the painter and Dan before doing the Spider-Man climb back into the villa. It's thought that he then went to the upper patio or the roof where he either jumped or slipped to his death. The media obviously immediately got hold of this story. It was all over TMZ at the time. And it was rumoured that Johnny was high on drugs. But he wasn't. two months later, when the toxicology report came back, there were no drugs or alcohol found in his system, including no trace of any of the prescribed antipsychotic medications. Oh my God, this is purely his own brain malfunctioning. Yep. 
So if he wasn't high on drugs, what the fuck happened to make him go on this rampage? Split. He's been split in his mind. His mind has broken. Yep. Yeah. And to this day, no one knows why he did what he did. More than his father speculates that it was that undiagnosed head injury that fucked it up his son's mm. brain so badly that it turned him into a killer. Oh, man. That's such a nasty story, Michelle. I'm so sorry. It's nasty. And do you know what? There were a lot more details about I'm what glad you didn't happened give to Miss Kathy. No, I didn't. I couldn't. It was too upsetting. And this poor old 81-year-old lady who opened up her house. Yeah. You know, like, why didn't the dad say, Miss Kathy, he's had problems? Give her a choice. I know, it's terrible. And she was so beloved by everybody in the Hollywood community. Like, it's just so sad for everyone involved. And now his family have to wear that. They have to own that, mm. that they didn't give the warnings, that it was their son who was responsible for all this mayhem and death and misery. Yeah. And then he's got this daughter as well who's got to grow up with that as a legacy. Yeah. It's not good. Not a great story, Michelle. How are we going to come back from that? How are we going to come back from that? This is comedy. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But, you know, you do know people that it is also true crime. And true crime, there's a little clue there. It's crime. And it's true. (laughs) Hard to find things to laugh about when it comes to true crime. I know. Oh, dear. So, look, all I've got to say, Geordie, on that note now is... Wherever you are. Oh, dear. Whatever you do. And don't do anything bad. <laughs> Just, Just keep, keep eavesdropping. 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 Eaves